So Pastor Caleb mentioned earlier on, we had a project a few years ago that was a building project in Uganda, Africa, and, and the name of this title sermon is Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And I got to tell you, those two things converged in an experience that I had while I was there. You know, I also had the privilege to be there on that particular trip. And one of the things that we were doing is Scott Prentice, who was an aspiring firefighter and military veteran, he is a strong guy, and he and I were working at mixing the mortar which they called Machanga. I keep thinking they were saying chimichanga, and I said, I'm in for that, but that's not what they were talking about. It was either Machanga or Masenu, depending on what dialect people were speaking. And so the way that they did this, we had 20-something people that we were fixing mortar for, and they were constantly calling out for more mortar. And so Scott and I are over there. We're working with some of the local workers, some of the Ugandan workers that are there, and Scott and I It's right at the equator, it is hot, and we are soaking wet. I mean, you could wring water out of our pants, out of our underwear, you wouldn't want to do that, out of our shirts, everything, there was not a dry stitch on us, terribly wet. And we looked at Adam, one of the Ugandan workers, a young guy that was there, and and Scott says to him, Adam, I've noticed you don't sweat. And Adam says, yeah, I do, when I'm working hard. Oh, what a dick. I wonder we learned that stuff. You know, I said, dude, we're here to help you. Come on, quit busting our chops. It was really something, though, to watch that team come together. We had people from all different backgrounds. I mean, we had some people there that were um, business owners, business executives. We had people that were retired. We had people that were just coming into the marketplace. We had people that were students. We had men, we had women, we had retirees, we had younger individuals, uh, we had retired, not retired, but, but military veterans, we had people in city services like Scott as a firefighter, we had engineers, more from a technical standpoint, computer programmers, we had artists, there were so many different trades there. Did you notice what I did not mention in all those trades? Not many people in construction. Not many of us knew how to use one of these. And it was interesting that they knew how to use volunteers incredibly well because they also, in addition to us as North Americans, they put local Ugandan workers beside us who didn't know, thankfully, how to use this. And they helped to make sure that the quality control was there, that the mortar joints were right, that that everything was aligned, the plumb lines were right, the corners tied in well, every thing tied in. We did not want this to come down on anybody's heads. And we built, as you see, this building. Now, this happens to be the first trip that we took. And you can see so many different people with differing skills working together. And that's one of the things we also see about Nehemiah. Nehemiah had people of all different backgrounds, all different skills, who were working with one another. They were working together for a common purpose. And in our study in Nehemiah, we pick up today in chapter 3, And we begin to see the, remind you that in chapter 3, as you read through this, you're going to hear terms like building and repairing the wall. Nehemiah's charge before God and his permission from the king was to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Now, others had gone before him. Ezra is one who reinstituted the law and the worship. Zerubbabel had gone. He was a guy who took the rubble, so to speak, and he built up a temple And they had been doing that, but now later on, Nehemiah comes and his charge is to rebuild the wall. And you see that over 40 times mentioned in chapter 3. Now, all scriptures inspired by God is profitable. The scriptures tell us that I believe that with my whole heart. 
But I also know that some parts are a little more interesting than others. And so if you have insomnia, like you can't go to sleep at night, you might want to read Nehemiah chapter 3. Because it's a whole bunch of names, and it's a whole bunch of gates, and it's a whole bunch of sections, and it seems like, what is all of this about? But i got to tell you, even in that, there are some details that are so important to see, and largely it's all these people working together, a variety of people. If you look at the names in Nehemiah 3, you're going to see different trades and individuals. You'll see individuals and tradesmen. You see temple servants that are there. You see goldsmiths, government leaders, priests, Levites. You see perfumers that are working on the wall. You see all kinds of different ones, even people that come in from the outside, workers from Jericho, Tekoa, Mispah, Gibeon. And you have some individuals that are working along with their daughters. There were sons and daughters. So all of these people were working together. But in chapter 3, unlike the building of the temple and other portions in the scriptures, what do you not see in this list? Construction workers. Now, I don't know if that was just an omission or if that's by God's design. But you have a lot of people who are coming from very different backgrounds, a variety of skill sets, and they are united on a common goal. And that common goal causes them to work together toward building this wall as God has directed them for the protection of the city. It's really a beautiful statement. We see it's a big project that required all of these people. If you look at the, the map that's here, there's an area that's spoken of. It's not the green line. That's another reason that map's there, but it's the red area that was encompassed. It was a significantly large project, one that Nehemiah could not do on his own. It required a lot of people working together to create a product that God had directed them to do, all these varieties of trades. You know, you and I as followers of Christ, we're not really called to build a building. Not even to build a church building or a Christian school or anything like that. There are times when we need to build facilities, but that's not really what we're called to do. You and I are called to build the church of Christ, the body of Christ. I realize that Jesus is the one who builds the church. He said, I will build my church, and it's the gates of hell that will not prevail against it. He says that in Matthew 16. And I understand other scriptures talk about Jesus being the cornerstone on which everything else receives its direction and its empowerment. But God is so chosen in his wisdom to use you and to use me as followers of Jesus to build his body, to build his church. I thank God for that. I, I wonder at that at times. But this is a spiritual building. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and oftentimes, by the way, before I get into these passages, here's the reason I'm doing that. The Older Testament is great. It is the Word of God. It's important for us to draw principles and examples from this. But Corinthians, 1 Corinthians tells us that the reason why these things were written down are not just for history lessons. They are written so that you and I, as followers of Jesus today, might learn from their example, both positively and negatively. And so we're trying to learn from what Nehemiah had done and see what part of it fits with us. So it's good to take it and then tie it to the Newer Testament and see how those principles are carried over there. So that's what I'm trying to do right now. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 says this, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, 
You yourselves, as followers of Jesus, you yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house, to a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You and I are part of the building program that God is doing. But we're living stones. This is a spiritual household, a spiritual priesthood, so that people can see Jesus in us and they can honor him as God. Caleb, a little earlier, used a passage that also is very important. I hope you were listening. In Ephesians chapter 4, he talked about how leaders, pastors are there to equip believers to do the work of the ministry. Sometimes people say, well, if they, they find out I'm a pastor, well, how many ministers do you have at your church? Well, what they mean is how many people do you have on staff? How many pastors? How many directors? How many different people? You know what the answer is to that question? We should have as many ministers in our church as we have members in our church. You got that? The role of those in leadership are to train and to equip and to challenge, to motivate, and to mobilize people toward the direction that God has for us. Every single man, every single woman, every single student that is a part of the body of Christ has a role to play. I love what it says there. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. That is Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The New International Version puts that phrase this way, as each part does its part. You know, a church body is, we're not an organization we are an organism. This is a living, breathing, dynamic entity. It is the body of Christ, with Christ as the head. We are members of that body. Now, every organism also has organization. You see the difference? And we should do each one do our part for the common good, working together for that common purpose. To accomplish the will of God. Now, you take on a Sunday morning. This is sort of a microcosm of what I'm talking about. It takes a lot of people to be able to provide the programming and the ministry that happens even on a Sunday morning, and this is just a small part of what happens in a church. Sometimes the focus gets on those that are most public, like the preacher or the worship leader, but it should never be that. Matter of fact, we want to work hard not to do that. That's one of the reasons we had three different preachers up here last week. And we shared, we tag-teamed the sermon. For those of you that are here, you know that Caleb and Matt Hawkins and I were all up here and took a portion of Scripture and just opened it. We love doing that. hope it was helpful to you. But see, it's not built around one person. I'm here. I'm no longer the senior pastor here. Caleb is. But I have the opportunity to open the Word, as does Matt. It's important to understand that the function is beyond any one person. Same thing with Danny. Danny could not get up here as beautiful a voice as he has, as capable as he is on the guitar. He needs a whole team of people working with him to lead us into the place of worship. It's not just up here. What about people in our tech booth? They could either kill us or make us look better than we are. Please don't turn off the lights, okay? I know there's time you want to turn off the mic, but please don't. But 
ushers, hosts, not even in this building. What about the people who are caring for our children right now? From changing diapers to discipling and teaching and caring for those children while we have the privilege of being here and opening the Word. And that's just on a Sunday morning. I could go on and on and on, each part doing its part. What part has God called you to play in the greater body of Christ? Are you playing that part? Every part is important. We need you, as you need to be able to do this for healthiness. Pray about that. Seek God's counsel, as we talked about last week, and then get involved. Not only should we work together, we find from Nehemiah this, We need to expect opposition. That was one of the things that Caleb said last week. When God's doing a work, you better expect that there's going to be opposition to that. Sometimes that takes the the face of individuals. Sometimes it's even within your own ranks. Sometimes it's from the outside. But there's a common face behind all of that, and that is Satan. So let's look at what happens in Nehemiah and see how he both recognized that and then stood against it. And we see this beginning in chapter 4. I want to read to you the first three verses or so of chapter 4. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they reinstitute sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and even the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes. What are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. It is so feeble. You get the point? Through through their words, they're trying to tear down. They're trying to undermine. This is sort of a psychological warfare. They're trying to get in there and get in their head and get them discouraged and defeated and despondent and divided. That's exactly what they're doing. In the face of these individuals, you will find come from differing places around that area. We see some of them named. If you look on a map here, you can see that some of these individuals, like Sanballat the Horonite, is also Sanballat the Samaritan, which is that northern region of the reddish area. The further to the east area, Tobiah the Ammonite, the land of Amnon, where there had been the Canaanites that were there, and they were constantly children of Israel in battle with them. You have Geshem the Arab, which was from the south, and you even have Ashdodites, which is not listed on here, but it's right on the coast of the Mediterranean in the old land of Philistia, or Tyre and Sidon. And these are individuals who came into the area around Jerusalem, and they began to take possession of what was not really theirs. You see, when Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, came in, he had not only torn down the wall, which needed to be repaired, he also came in and he deported the choicest of all the peoples. He killed most of the men, he killed all those, and left those that were undesirable for his service. And then they did something else which was characteristic for the ancient world. He imported peoples from other places to break down that sense of national pride to subjugate them, not just for them, but for the rest of time. So you have peoples like Samaritans that were coming into Jerusalem, Ammonites that were coming into Jerusalem, Arabs that were coming into Jerusalem, 
Ashdodites that were coming into Jerusalem. See, there had been a vacuum that was there, and a vacuum is not a natural state. So all of these peoples rush in to grab what's theirs. And part of the issue as to why they're opposing Nehemiah and the people is not so much that they were first and foremost against God, they were trying to protect their own interests. You know, it's about the economy, stupid. They had businesses, they had homes, they possessed things. They didn't want to lose those. What was theirs in their mindset was being threatened. And so they were going to oppose. They first started with this psychological warfare, trying to get in their heads. Well, how do you do? What, how do you do, defeat that? Well, the first thing that Nehemiah does, we see in verses 4 and 5, is he prays. Does that sound familiar, those of you that were here last week? He first meets opposition with prayer. Oh, God, this is your battle more than mine. He says, here, O oh our God, we are despised by these people. Turn back their taunts on their own head. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, in case you're a thinking person, I hope you are. I assume you are. And I hope that you have heard somewhere that Jesus said we should pray for our enemies and even for those that spitefully use us. And you're thinking, wait a minute, how does that fit with this? That's a really, really complicated question that I can only give you a simple answer. <clears throat> Think of it in this way. Nehemiah is not really praying against his enemies, not people that have come against him personally. He's praying against the enemies of God. And in essence, what he's doing in praying against the enemies of God is he said, God, frustrate their efforts, thwart their plans, so that your plan and your purposes can move forward. He's really praying more for the coming of the will of God than he is against these people as individuals. But at the end of the day, see, they're opposing God. He first comes and he prays for protection for the people, and he prays for protection for the, the mission that God has given to them. Then he says this, verse 6, So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. We built the wall. They did not give in to the taunts. They did not give in to the threats. They did not give in to the mental issues that were coming their way. Instead, they chose to believe God, not his adversaries. That's a choice that every person can make. We may not be able to change our circumstances, but you and I do have a choice in this. We choose as to who we're going to believe. Are we going to believe God, or are we going to believe those who are against him in whatever way? It's your choice. Do we make a wise choice for us? They made a wise choice. They said, we will build. We're going to move forward. If God is for us, who can be against us is another way to put this. Now, the opposition didn't roll over and play dead, as it were. Instead, they began to escalate the issues. Verse 7, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites and the Cellulites, no, that's not in there, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted it together to come and fight against Jerusalem and it caused confusion in it. So they were saying, you think that we're going to give in? No. 
This is our home court. We'll take you. Notice what the response is again in verse 9. And we prayed. Again, Nehemiah prays. And he puts it before the Lord. But he didn't just pray. What's the rest of it say? And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And the rest of the chapter is really outlining how that protection was established and the strategic nature of that. You know, the phrase that James uses in the Newer Testament is, faith without works is dead. That's true here. Nehemiah got that. Our faith, our trust is in God to protect us, but he also has given us minds. He's given us abilities. He's given us the ability to do some work toward that end. That's why the psalmist says, Lord, we pray that you would, you would give success to the work of our hands. God at times does step in and he does divinely deliver people, but in this case he is expecting them to use the resources that are also at their hand. Understanding the deliverance is always of the Lord. The battle is always of the Lord. But he sets a plan and pace for protection. People come and they say, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. In other words, it looks like their, their strength is flagging. There's too much rubble. The job is too big. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies have said they will not know nor see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. But at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, like over and over and over, they begged with us, they pleaded with us, you must return to us. So Nehemiah does just that. As a good leader, as a godly leader, he puts a plan in place that will bring hope to the people. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. Stop there just for a second, hit the pause button. One of the things that we also see in these chapters is the strategic nature of Nehemiah, how many of the assignments were made when people were building. He would give them the responsibility of building within their family group, within their clan, with their relatives, and he would give them the responsibility of building a portion of the wall that was next to their home. You think they're motivated? You think they have ownership? Of course they do. If it fails anywhere else, it's not failing here. I'm not going to be the weak link in the chain is the mindset. Also, they were there with their swords, with their bows, with their shields. And we find that they were right by their home. They were not worried about what's going to happen to their family across town. If the fight comes, I'm there with my family. There's some real strategic things in here which are sort of subplots to all of this. The main thing is that not only had they learned to work with one another, they learned that to succeed, they had to be willing to fight for one another, not with one another. Do you get the difference? It's just one word difference. We work with one another, and we're willing to fight for one another. We have each other's back. We believe the best in each other. We move forward in such a fashion that the enemy out there is not going to divide us here. It's been said, and I think is good, that that which holds us together or unites us is much greater than that which tears us apart. That's true. 
when we have a common vision, a common goal, and that's to do the will of God, to do the work of God, it unites us across our petty differences. That's united in one way. There's a united in a different way, and that is when we unite against a common enemy, that the threat from the outside coming in is, binds us together. That's why a lot of times you say blood's thicker than water. Okay, my brother that's two years younger, we had some nasty fights. We would go at each other, but let somebody say something about him and I'm in their face. The same thing is true the other way around. See, we united against a common enemy. That's what was happening here. And that's what happens oftentimes in the body of Christ. You see, as Christ followers, we need to grab onto that. You remember I mentioned the work in Uganda? One of the things that uh, Nehemiah does, he encourages the people, says, don't be afraid. In verse 9, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives, and for your homes. And then the end result, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. But they worked and they had people on guard, or they worked with their weapon by their side, and that's the nature of what happens from there on. The work in Uganda I was mentioning oftentimes had, uh, it wasn't always good. Oftentimes there was challenge that was there from within the country and from without. Uh, Gary Skinner is the pastor and the missionary from Canada that started that work, and he went to Uganda along with his wife and children during the days of Idi Amin. Idi Amin was a cruel, wicked despot. He was known for killing people indiscriminately, and there were death threats out on Gary and Marilyn's life and church leadership. And God saved them. God preserved them. Idi Amin was taken out. They also had threats like this. They did not understand how they were going to care for all the orphans that were on the streets of Kampala. They, they had a desire, they had a need, but they didn't know what to do. And Gary Skinner's wife, Marilyn, was the one that God used to bring to him and say, we both have musical backgrounds, have we start a children's choir? And we take them to the UK, and we take them to Canada, and we take them to the US. We expose people to the need that's here so that we're not alone. And we also raise funds for this great work. And they said, that's fine, but I know nothing about doing that. To give you one logistical issue to show how much faith these people had, they had no way to get this group of children, no, no matter how well-trained they were, to the U.S. across the Atlantic, or to Canada, or even to the U.K. So they go to British Airways, and they ask the unthinkable. They ask the person at British Airways if they would sell them tickets to be paid for after they had these services and received offerings. Have you ever tried that? <laughs> Don't. Okay, you're not going to buy an airline ticket on time, especially if you have nothing to put down. God answered their prayer in an amazing way. As stupid as it sounded, they go and the person they need to talk to in British Airways first said, I know you. I've been going to the church for the last six months. And God used him in a strategic place to provide airline tickets in advance to be paid simply on a promissory note. What faith. But they didn't listen to the obvious opposition God provided. As Christ followers, you and I need to work with each other, but we also need to fight for one another. 
In Ephesians 6, 10, it says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, principalities, and powers. The ultimate enemy is Satan. We need to recognize that and avail ourselves. 1 Peter 5, 8 says that Satan roars around like the lion, roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So who are we going to trust for deliverance? We put on the full armor of God, it says in Ephesians 6, with which you may be able to stand against the strategies of the devil, against his oppositions. I'm thankful we have about 40 women who are going through a study on this passage you know, taught by Priscilla Shire. And my wife, Emily, is, is leading the class, and I get the benefit then of being able to have that taught to me before, ladies, you get it. And I love it. It's awesome. And she shared with me a passage or a statement from Tony Evans, who happens to be Priscilla's father, and it says this. Faith is acting as if it is so. Even when it is not so, that it might become so just because God said so. You like that? I love it. I think it's awesome. Listen carefully because there's a lot in there. Faith is acting as if it is so, even when it is not so, that it might become so. Why? Simply because God said so. That's faith. The assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Who are we going to listen to? Who are we going to trust? That's what we're called to do. Faith is one of those weapons that we have against the enemy. And love is another. Speaking the truth in love, we are to build up the body of Christ. What a great statement. What is love? It's, it's sacrificing. Sacrificing our time. It's sacrificing our ability. It's sacrificing our finances. When it's in our power to meet a need in somebody else's life that God's put in our face. Go back to Uganda with me for just a second. You might say, well, that's hard. That's heavy. That's, oh, man, that's radical. That's just, oh, I don't want that. I want to tell you something. There's great joy when we choose to follow Savior in this. Great joy. There is sacrifice, yes, but it is so worth it. The house that you saw with the bricks and mortar that were going up at the first of this sermon, I had the privilege to be there for that trip, too. That was the first one that we took. And the second time that Emily and I went to Uganda, the trip that Caleb was talking about with a lot of other team, Emily and I and Josh and Kelly had the opportunity to eat lunch and be in a home that we had helped to build seven years before. And when the house mother that was there, there's eight children of varying ages living in this home and one house mother, when she heard that we had been a part of the team that built her home, she fell on her knees and she said, oh, oh, she could hardly speak. And she said, I have so prayed for the day when I could meet the people that built my home. What do you think that did to us? Was it worth it? Was it worth the sacrifice? Was it worth the shots? Was it worth the, the time? Was it worth all of the things? Absolutely and more. The same thing when I think in terms of 40 years of God's faithfulness to this congregation. There's been hard times, there's been sacrifice, but it's worth it. And it's worth it because of how we can build upon the foundation of those that have gone before. 40 acts of service, Caleb talked to you about earlier, leading up to Easter Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Those acts of generosity and service, what would that look like? A few weeks ago, um, it was one of the two days in Phoenix that it rains, and it was cold. 
And Emily and I were just driving around, probably looking at houses or something like that. We were driving around. We pulled at Starbucks to go get a cup of coffee in our neighborhood. So I go in, and I come back out, and Emily had been sitting there in the car. I was such a dutiful husband, loving her, and she didn't have to get out in the water. I'll, I'll forget that. But she had been sitting in the car. And she said, you see that woman over there? I'd seen her a lot of times. She lives in our community. And she had grocery bags on her feet, and she was taking the grocery bags off and putting new grocery bags on to cover her shoes because it was so wet and so cold. And Emily said, I think we should do something to help her. Now, i got to tell you, for me, I would have just gotten in the car, backed out, and gone on. Truth be told, that's where I would have been. But Emily, God had put it on her heart to say we should do something. And so God used her to nudge my heart. And I went over and introduced myself and found out Anita and found her name. I haven't known that before. And said, do you, you need some like help with your shoes or something? She said, no, these are fine. These are good. But I said, would you like a new pair? She says, well, no, that's not necessary. I said, tell you what, Anita, I'd like to get you. My wife just saw this, and she felt like we should do something. We just want to help out. You're going to be here a while? So we went and got her some new shoes. Now Anita puts the plastic bags on the outside of her shoes, still. But when we see the neighborhood, it brings a warmth to her heart, a smile to her face. And I have to wonder, if there were 40 acts like that, if there were 40 acts like that multiplied by 400 people, what difference would God use that to make in our lives and in our community? And we will be overwhelmed with his joy as well as representing Jesus. Let's pray that that becomes reality and let's act so that it might be so. Father God, I want to thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that you will take your word and the principles that are here and apply those in our life through the power of your Holy Spirit and help us to become the people you want us to be and then do the work that you've called us to do. And may your name be glorified. May bring honor to you and may people be helped in the process. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. And if you agree with that prayer, would you say amen? Amen. amen.